Yeah, can you hear everything all right? Yeah, a little more in the headphones. How's that? All right, yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, give me that rack. Yo, what? what is a rack? The, li- the little tom. All right, I got it, I got it. Yeah. Floor? Yep. All right. All right, give me some licks, some heaters, slappers. All right, yeah, I can open it up. really just need like a regular beat so just like a regular like a beat whatever you feel would be representative of your work just a regular beat yeah yeah just keep doing that You're listening to Public Announcement. I'm feeling supersonic. Give me gin and tonic. And he's Chris Black. Yo, let me cook, man. By all means. I'm in no hurry. Make me laugh. Give me your autograph. Noel Gallagher, man. That's how you write a song. Just a bunch of random words that rhyme. You throw in some cool drug references, and you're fucking done. These tryhards today don't know how to keep it simple. If you are in a rock band, that's literally all you need to do. Otherwise, you should just focus on your rock mythology. An attitude. Maybe get the same haircuts. Adopt a performance style involving little to no movement. Start with two maniac brothers. Hire a bald dude named Boner or... Maybe another townie. What was the other guy's name? The bassist. Gwiggle. Giggser? Gwegser? Exactly, exactly. You're not supposed to know how to say his name. It doesn't matter. Everything is just a mash of unintelligible English. Not to me. Isn't it right? You can't overstate the importance of the accent. The blue-collar, working-class identity, that, that whole thing. That's what makes the attitude so real. It's true, authentic, wild boy shit. Well, you know my theory. Oasis is the Leonard Skinner of England. Okay, all right, tell me more. All right. The Gallagher brothers are rednecks. The British translation of the redneck. This is deep, man. I mean, a lot of Oasis fans voted Brexit. Well, here's another theory, though. If, um, if people like 1994's Definitely Maybe, mm. they really should listen to Leonard Skinner's debut, 1973's Pronounced. Oh, yeah, man. Basically the same record. It's just Jacksonville rednecks instead of Manchester hooligans. Totally, mate. For both, that heavy swag is so connected to legitimate identity. Like, if that's your life, then we get to believe that you don't really give a fuck. You're not a bunch of nerds. Which brings us back to Nashville. Wait, man, what? What? I thought we were, I thought we were just talking about Oasis, man. I thought you were just excited that the supersonic beat is my go-to when situated behind the kit on my throne. <laughs> um, before, during, and after our trip, I think our main criticism was about Nashville lacking a certain edge, a lack of, of swag, if you will, mm. which is sort of a shame because Nashville has a real identity with country music. Country, as in American music, can, it can be cool. Yeah, that's what Nashville should own. I think maybe it's been uh, 
over corporate for too long, possibly too much CMT Viacom interference. I'm sure we've got some country fan Trumpers out there that feel that way, you know, just raging about Nashville elites. You're ruining our white cultural identity. This is all run by big offshore mega banks. Let's be clear. You're saying that Oasis and Leonard Skinner both provide a template of sorts uh, for solving Nashville's current nerd identity crisis? Like, that's how you get it back. Now, I'm not saying you can't have your Florida Georgia line, but you got to cut it with people that have real edge. You're right. You know, so maybe all these carpet-bagging transplants are the solution. They come in, weasel into positions of power where they can help Nashville correct course, you know? All right, all right. Um, you're saying that the solution is to bring in a bunch of New Yorkers? Not just New Yorkers, all the, all the coastal elites. All right, right. So, so they come in, they take over CMT Viacom, and then they just like sign the next oasis of country music? Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. Fam, Jesus Christ, bro, you're, you're out here. I thought of the whole thing. I think the band, first of all, is called Hard Black. Maybe they're fronted by a, a Chris Hard Black. Hell yeah. And maybe his more clever cousin plays guitar and, and writes the songs, you know? And that would be someone, I'm guessing, maybe James Wilburn Ellis? Uh, that's what I was thinking. What about the rest of the band? Townies. Doesn't matter, whoever. <laughs> But, but, like, I need names. Like, what are their names? Oh, right, right, right. Well, there's uh, th there's Dugan. Dugan Nash on bass. Dugan Nash! Fuck yes! And I think it'd be, like, uh, uh, Ronnie Ronald on drums. I like that one a lot, because you could just call him Rondo. Yeah, they're all a bunch of high school dropouts from Conyers, Georgia. They come to Nashville, embody all things American, capture the public's imagination. They drain the swamp. They make Nashville great again. <laughs> Or maybe I've just been listening to definitely maybe too much. Uh, no, no, I think you're onto something, but I need you to tell me how you're going to tie all this shit back to Vanessa Carlton. Uh, I hadn't really thought I'd... Uh... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Did you just call her a carpet-bagging transplant? Matt, shots fucking fired. That is no way to treat today's esteemed guest. Look, I didn't say anything wrong with that. Jake and Reno from last week's show, they're definitely carpetbaggers. Vanessa was a proper New York City kid, and, and Libby Calloway, our guest on... Next week's show, she was a New York media elite. But she's from Tennessee, so I don't think she necessarily like qualifies as the definition of a carpetbagger. That's true. Well, you know, though, like post-Civil War Reconstruction era. Okay, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> if I wasn't already a Southerner, I'm just saying, if I wasn't already, I, I, I might have been a carpetbagger. I mean, I would have definitely been a carpetbagger. No question, no question. Dirty Yankee. I equate it to traveling to a country with a favorable exchange rate. And I come out here to offer to buy the place from you, to make your right good offer. I'm just saying I always kind of liked the carpetbaggers in Gone with the Wind. Great, great book, man. Classic book. I would call that required reading for someone raised in Atlanta in the heart of Dixie. I know just how much that means to you. And you were born in the capital of the Confederate States of America, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah. R Richmond was the capital, right? Oh, yeah. RVA, the CSA capital. Actually, you know what? I think I want to change my answer. No? I'd rather be someone like Rhett Butler, you know? I don't believe it. More of a disenchanted Southern guy, a rich speculator uh, that rarely gets stressed out, travels a lot. But Scarlett O'Hara, uh, she's she's toxic, man. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. I might stick with carpetbagging. Uh, well, would you and Naren ever leave New York, take your riches uh, and New York liberal elite sophistication to somewhere like Nashville? Take my talents to South Beach? Miami's the best. Not any time soon. I've been here 14 years. 
longer than I've lived anywhere else. I I love New York. But I get the appeal of packing it up for a more remote existence. Like, like it would be nice to live in a house. It doesn't have to be a big house. Like, I'd just like to have a room where I could play drums. Uh, without your neighbors calling 311. That's all I want. And I could do that in a place like Nashville and have a basketball hoop. You know, then I'd be fully kitted. This guy, man. All right. Well, you know, I think you're looking at this all wrong, bro. Um, you already have the apartment. That's where you sleep. That's where you take showers. You can spend quality time with your wife, smoke weed. And then separately, you can walk like five minutes to your Greenpoint space. And that's where you keep all the drums. You make all the noise at any hour you fucking want. What's the problem? And I, and I know for a fact you pass by basketball courts on the way. That's true. And if, you know, prefer, you can pop into Manhattan. The big city. Yeah, man, you hop on the subway. You're at Diamond City Studios in Tribeca, uh, where last time I checked, there's multiple drum kits, synthesizers, cool-looking guitars, complicated recording shit everywhere, all the stuff you love, you like. True. See what I'm saying? We're recording this in a studio that was once Philip Glasses, speaking into some vintage Cold War era microphones. There's a lot of history in this room. Because that's what public announcement fucking deserves. No way I'm doing a pod <laughs> from some house. Some sad suburban fucking man cave in Alpharetta. That ain't that ain't popping. That ain't happening for me. All excellent points. Thanks for setting me straight there. I know what I'm good for. I get the appeal of having a yard, a little more room to groove, slower pace of life, making moves from a smaller regional airport, all that stuff. The regional airport actually appeals to me the most. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I get it. I mean, everyone we talked to uh, on our on our Nashville trip. Um, seemed to have a pretty good life going. Vanessa's place especially was really nice. It's great. I enjoyed recording from her sunroom just off the kitchen. Next to the wildly important adjoining mudroom. It was a mudroom, right? Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, she's got a grand piano chilling in the living room. Plenty of room for kid toys, all that stuff. And you're what, like five minutes from the rest of all the East Nashville shit, you know? And maybe another five to downtown. Great location. Plus, you have to remember, she's lived in New York since her teens... Her husband's a Providence roadie. So it's safe to say that they were aware of their options. And yet Nashville, you know, is still able to charm them. I, I think the whole Music City USA thing is kind of real. Uh, places like, you know, Los Angeles and New York are dominated by shop talk. Industry speak. And Nashville, you know, has an element of that too. But I catch more uh, musician speak in Nashville than anywhere else I visit. People are casually talking about songwriters, uh, weird musical instruments that I don't fucking know about. If you're a musician, that has to be better than living in a place where people are obsessed with, you know, the weather or something. I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, if you're a successful musician married to another successful musician and you just had a baby, maybe you want to slow things down a bit. And for that purpose, I think Nashville seems pretty hard to beat. Recording from Vanessa's house was cool. I felt like we got a little window into her every day. Yeah, man. I mean, I was happy to kind of hang out and catch up uh, in her in her new place. How long have you known her now? Years now, actually. I think it's, yeah, probably more more than five years at this point. And you guys met from uh, you and Jake Davis doing the video or yeah, before yeah. that? No, it's a weird story, actually. When I, my first apartment in New York uh, was on Mulberry Street and her best friend and stylist, uh, Tracy Moulton, had a vintage store around the corner. And she went to my gym and we just, we became friends. She moved to LA and then Tracy and I were on a flight back from LA together. And saw each other, and then she mentioned that Vanessa had a new record coming out, and blah, 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 and then we made the videos, and the rest is history. A perfect example of how you meet all these random people. Well, I mean, look, man, I'm a friendly guy. And in the hood, and Tracy's really friendly. Tracy's great. She's one of my favorite people, and it's fun to do things like that. It's fun, and it worked out. Like, not, not only do we make a couple videos, but, you know, Vanessa and I are still good friends, so it was a positive experience. Well, I enjoyed meeting her. She's cool. Uh, her husband, John's band, Deer Tick, is great. 
I don't really know him, but The Weight played with Deertick years ago at Bowery, and I've been keeping up with their records you know, ever since. Yeah, I think they're you know great additions to Nashville. Carpetbaggers or not. <laughs> On that, let's, uh, let's go to our conversation with Vanessa Carlton. What's up? I'm doing really well. A little hungover because I turned 36 yesterday and I did my version of party, which was go to a restaurant, a movie, and then a bar. That's more of a full night than I usually have. And started with a foot massage. From John or from a real physician? <laughs> from a re- reflexologist. Oh, namaste. Namaste. I wanted to talk about a lot of things with you. I want to start, I guess, is like, why are you down here? I finished my last record here because the majority of that album was done in England and we ran out of time and money. I couldn't finish it there with Steve Osborne, the producer I was working with. And so I, through my husband, John, I met this amazing producer, Adam Landry, and he has a studio here. And I got an Airbnb came down for the week, finished the record. And really, John had been like inching toward, back towards Nashville, just kind of hinting at he's, is wanting he from, to live Is back he here. from here? He's from Providence, okay, that's what I thought. but was living here when we started dating and then moved in with me in New York for a year. And then we decided to move back here. Well, for him to move back here and I moved to Nashville and I now own a car. <laughs> what a, like, you didn't drive in New York, did you? No, I didn't drive in New York. I didn't even have a working driver's license. Like, well, you know, a, a lot real, of city kids. Yeah, like, I mean, because I, I went to high school in New York and I got my permit in Pennsylvania. And I did drive for like a period there. But this was this moving to Nashville was awesome because I've never owned a car before and I've gotten really good at driving. Oh, you're feeling yourself. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're... very safe. Well, yeah. I think new drivers are either really bad or really overly safe. Yeah. Uh, I used to be a very cavalier and terrible driver, but it's gotten really like reined in. So you feel comfortable here though? You like it here? Yeah. I love Nashville. Are you a lifer? I think we're moving back to the East Coast in like three years. <laughs> wow. So you've got a timeline on it. <laughs> to already. Rhode Island. Yeah. Partially because John's band is based in Rhode Island. Yeah. So, you know, it's like... That's a real band. They want to be together a lot of the time yeah. and, and really be able to play. And so, you know. You need to be there. They all live in Rhode Island? Yeah. Why Providence. Not? Oh, okay. Well, that's cool, I guess. I well, mean, <laughs> I don't know much about Rhode Island, but it's it's very beautiful. And we might be able to find something near the water, which would be rad. So are you done with New York forever? New York is my favorite city in the world. It's like the best. I will try and get back there at some point, but I don't think I can talk my family into... Moving back to New York. Your, your yeah. immediate family, the people in this house. Yeah. John and Sid. I mean, Sydney, like, just try, just walks towards the elevator every chance she gets when we're home in, in New York in that apartment. She's just like, get me out of here. Drawn to she the elevator. She wants to go to the sidewalk. She wants to be out in the city, you know? Well, that's a sign, I think. Yeah, it's like, no, we can't live here. You're going to, she's going to get lost. I didn't really realize you went to high school in New York. Yeah, I went to professional children's school. To dance, right? Yeah, ballet. Wait, is it called professional children's school? Yeah. Like that's scary. That, that sounds intense. Very literal yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. It's for kids that have professional schedules. 
meaning during the day they can't be in school. So a lot of actors would go there because they can do their auditions during the day, like come and go. And or if they have a project they're working on, you can take leave from the high school at any point and like do correspondence. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. And like all the School of American Ballet kids, which I was one of them, we would go to PCS because we all had like 1030 class in the morning. So we go to school and then go to class six blocks up, then go back to school, then go back to class. That sounds intense. Oh, yeah. It was intense. It's a fishbowl. Are you aware that it's intense, though? I mean, you're a kid, so you don't have that much to compare it against. Yeah, I mean, we're just... Anyone who's going there, I think a lot of the dancers were like, you know, we're very kind of crazy obsessed with ballet. So we're there for a real clear reason to us. I think some of the actor kids had a, a little rougher. I think not all the time to do those kids want to be acting. You know, they're like child stars. Yeah. A lot of child stars were there. Like Ma- Macaulay Culkin was in my class. Oh, that's the ultimate child star. Yeah, actually, he was I think. the child star. And I'll never forget, you know, we go in, into school in the morning and at the time he was embattled in something with his father. Yeah, he sued his, his parents. They took all his money. Yeah. And none of us knew the details because we just didn't. We Mac is in our class. Like he's our friend. It's not this is pre-internet. Yeah. You know, we didn't know what was going on, but there'd be journalists and these weird paparazzi outside the door to our high school like all every day during that time and just they'd be stalking him that was a big story that was a huge story my only knowledge of that story was just like those weird people waiting to like take pictures of him we'd all lie and be like he's not here or he's not coming today and how old are you like 15 16 i went to that school 14 to 17 and when you got out you went straight to ballet right by the end of high school, I was done. But that's rare, right? Most of those people continue because it's they're pretty ingrained at that no, point. I thought ballet, it's like a lot of people don't go much further than that. It was my understanding. Well, if you have a professional career, most people start to like think about retiring in their mid-30s to 40s, early 40s. But to like be like a superstar or whatever, like to really, really go, aren't you kind of sorted out by then? Like Kind of oh, like yeah. gymnastics or at something? At 17, you'll be accepted you know. into whatever company. You know, if you have an eye on the com- a company, you would know by then if you're what company you're going to get into. Or So for me, it was New York City Ballet or bust. So if I didn't get into New York City Ballet, which I didn't, I was like, I don't want to go to Seattle. My other option was to go to P&B, which would have been in hindsight, you know, it could have been awesome, but I just didn't want to leave New York. So that was sad. Wah, wah. But <laughs> <laughs> so well, I know you're still friends with a lot of those people. So I'm sure oh, you, all of them. you had a birthday party one year and I was like, I think everybody in here, about you dancer? can look, you can tell they're professional dancers. Like you can look at them and just tell the shape of their body is not like mine. You know what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying? It's not, it is not the same. And I remember being like, wow, this is, I think there's like, most of these people are professional dancers. Yeah. Well, what does it sound like when you hear it from them now? You made the right decision? There was no other decision for me to make. At that point, I was like, I had started making my little demo tapes of my stupid little songs. And I was, but I was really into it. And it was really like that whole other realm of living in New York was starting to reveal itself to me. Like you could go downtown and not just be stuck in Lincoln Center, you know, and you could start playing in clubs and bars and go to the village. And I mean, this is 97. So it was like, it was cool. It was, I was really happy to be moving on. But I also didn't go to college. Like my mom and dad were like really sad. <laughs> like I wasn't that's, going that's to most parents. <laughs> if you don't go to college, we can speak on that a little bit. That was yeah. my experience as well. Yeah. yeah we're, uh, you're like, no, but guys, you don't get it. You know? And it's, <laughs> hey man, <laughs> it's like, you know, it worked out, but my mom still brings up the fact that I didn't go to college. But. 
My mom did for a long time. Yeah. I think that's like in the last five years she stopped. Really? Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't always like anger or anything. It was just like, well, you know, Chris didn't go, so yeah. You know, like that. It's kind always of thing. like, mom, do you even have to tell that to that person? Yeah. Like they don't care <laughs> yeah, if I went care. to college or not. <laughs> that's not important to them at all. <laughs> so you, as soon as you were done with the ballet, you started making demos, and you were doing, or were you doing it at the same time? Yeah, I was doing it the same time, but um, then I got when I quit. At 17, I graduated. I got an apartment in Hell's Kitchen with my friend Megan, who was in New York City Ballet. And that's why I really started like trying to figure out how I was going to support myself because I was waitressing. But I was like, how do I become a musician in a way that is going to help like pay my rent for real? You know, well, what's the scene like? What scene are you into? Yeah. Like, where are you going and playing and all that kind of stuff? I was just going mostly to the bitter end. And the director of the songwriter circle there, Tina Schaefer, who's a friend to this day, who's awesome. You know, she I was underage at the time. So they're just letting me play. I got Kenny, who was the booker there until he died about 10 months ago. He'd been the booker there for like 35 years. Like he's seen everyone play there. And he gave me my first gig. But in terms of like a scene with other musicians, I didn't have anyone. I was with, I was a dancer. I was just all with the dancers. And I was just like the one dancer who was like into music. So I like had no one. But once it started happening, it happened like fast. Well, then I got a publishing deal, which led, I got a publishing deal, I think at 19. Mm. Before I had a record contract, I didn't have a record deal, but the publishing deal allowed me to like meet people and well, they put you with people too. Yeah, That's part of their job. I had got a couple of meetings and led to a record deal. But, but I mean, I'm talking like how long between the publishing deal and the record oh, deal? Oh, I don't know. But I do, I have to say, a great story is when I was playing at the bitter end, Ahmet Erdogan, the founder of Atlantic Records, I, you know, how did we get him to come? Oh, my father, who's a pilot, flew Ahmet's friend and gave Ahmet's friend my demo. And Ahmet listened to it and liked it and came to my first show at the Bitter End, which by the way was terrible. He, but he came with- it was, your first, it was your actual first show I there? think it was my first real show, <laughs> Damn, like under rough, my name. It was terrible. I was like, I was Did like, you know he this was is there hell. before you played? Yeah, and he he walked in with these two beautiful women on either arm, and so he's tight. like in his like early eighties, dressed to perfection. <laughs> yeah, he's a legend. I mean, he's a legend. I mean, so he helped me a lot too. Like his interest in me, even though he never ended up giving me a record contract or offering me that, he was very. He knew I was way too young, and he was like cultivating me. I mean, to a certain degree, you know, every week. I would meet with him in his office and we would have like conversations about I mean, that's other artists. Very special. That's like a wild, I mean, yeah. he's like one of the best to ever do it. Yeah. You know? And especially for him to give you that attention without any real benefit for him. He's yeah. doing that because he likes you. He's not trying to make money, you know? But he must have enjoyed, you know, doing the mentor thing. Yeah. yeah. He was a real deal record man. Oh, and... he might be the last as far as that goes, I think. It's like the, in the classic way for yeah. sure. Why do you think he didn't want to sign you? You're too young? I don't know. I didn't even have enough songs to make a record. I mean, he was so spot on with me. He knew. I mean, I shouldn't have gotten a record deal until I was like in my late 20s, in my opinion. But um, that didn't happen. So he, at that point, was kind of a figurehead at Atlantic. How many songs did you have? I think I had four songs. <laughs> four, like I think a- I had like eight songs, but I have four songs like that were like recordable. I could put on a cassette tape. Were they that concerned though that they were your songs or trying to put you with writers and doing that whole thing? Yeah, at the time, Craig was like, what are we going to do with a singer songwriter? Like this girl was, writes really these piano there? songs. It was like a height of Britney Spears. Okay, that's what I thought. 
Well, and you remind me so much of Britney, so I'm glad, you know, I'm glad <laughs> oh, they really That's tried my to... girl right there. <laughs> I mean, I love Britney. I'm a Britney Spears fan, but it was not, not allowing, t- yeah, her success was not allowing any room for artists that were writing their own thing. And let's put it this way, though. When I say that, I mean, that was back in the day when mainstream radio was playing things other than dance music. Yeah. Now you don't have that. Nirvana was still being played on Z100 sometimes. So it's like you could hear different genres of music. If it was great or slash promoted enough or whatever, it could end up on mainstream pop radio. But that, I mean, radio was, I mean, that's what changed. I'm sure that's what sent you to the moon. You know what I'm saying? Radio is like the big deal still. Radio, when my first single came out, I got lucky that they added it, started adding it to top 40, like pop stations. Yeah. Well, and once the big stations add it, the rest of the country kind of follows suit usually. Yeah. And this is like in the midst of like, I think Clear Channel was buying all the stations. Yeah. This is before it's become- Yeah, the roundup was still yeah. going on at <laughs> yeah. that time. Yes. This is before radio is what it is now. How much ring kissing did you have to do at radio stations during that era? I don't remember. I mean, I remember being sent out on these like radio tours and promo things and I would just go and like talk to the DJ and play my song. And I had no idea what I was really doing. I was just like following the schedule that my manager gave me, you know, like hearing you talk about it a little more. I'm curious about being a young person. sounds like you weren't really part of some like major scene where there's the whole thing happening. I moved to New York at 19 and it was a little odd being a young person. There were no other 19 year olds. Like I just never met anyone my age around that time. Uh, like who are you hanging out with? Still just the ballet dance crew or kids you went to school I was just with? It's funny when you just, when you just describe yourself like that, I literally saw only one 19 year old man wandering New York. <laughs> yeah, it's only me. one. <laughs> this is the opening me. credits of his film yeah, about himself. It's hard to imagine. At the time, I was living in L.A. when my first record came out. Cause Did you do it there? I recorded it there at uh, Henson. And I was, I was very isolated. I made a couple friends. Like the first stylist lady that the label kind of hooked me up with, her name was Stephanie Wolf. She's a friend of mine to this day. But she was like, oh, my God, this poor girl. I remember the first meeting I had like with her. And it, it was like Ron Fair, the head of my label at the time. It was him and Jimmy Iovine. You know, he's like super intense. And I'm sure she's used to seeing him with like artists. You know, every couple of weeks, he's just like some little artist is sitting in, on the couch like, you know, now we're going to make this girl a star. And like, that's very much how Ron was. So I think, honestly, I was probably sitting there like shaking like a leaf. Like, what did I get myself into here? And, you know, she really took me under her wing. She's like, showed me the great Mexican spot in Silver Lake. And, you know, I, I she was my only friend. <laughs> she was my only friend in L.A. <laughs> I do remember driving a, a white Toyota Camry rental that the label had rented like for six months. I could have bought two of them for the <laughs> no, price they that they <laughs> spent on that rental car. That's record labels in that era, though. Yeah, they love that. They're idiots. No, they're not idiots. They're like, this is money to burn. Yeah. We don't care. We don't care. It's easier to do this, so we're going to do that. Exactly. And I drove around with that car in with the emergency brake on for the entire <laughs> six months. Yeah, you never, you never know when you got to pull the e-brake. So hard to get the car to really gain speed fast. Like... I was like, it's just an old crappy Camry. That's why. And then at the end, I can't remember who got in the car. They were like, they just lowered it. It was like gray, the same color yeah, as the seat. Down, and she yeah. just low, did this lower levering thing. And I was like, oh shit, was that the emergency brake on? I was, I should, 
she was like, have you been driving it with it like this? I was like, no, I've been, of course not. <laughs> I've been driving it with, like, with it like that for five months. The whole time. Did you like LA though then or no? Uh, it was fine. I lived in Oakwoods, which was really depressing. Oh, isn't that the place where all the actors come? The, yeah. Like little kids? That's really funny. That's like a famous building. Yeah. Uh, it was fine. <laughs> I'm not really in LA. I've hung out person. with you in LA a few times though. Yeah. You seem pretty happy out there. Yeah. I like to visit. I like to visit too. When did you come back to New York? Well, I always kept my apartment, my rental in Hell's Kitchen. So I came back to New York once I finished touring. I mean, then I ended up touring for a couple of years. So I was yeah. like really never anywhere. But yeah. then I was still based in New York. Was touring fun at that time? Terrible. You hated it? I hated it. Was there I ever a time you liked it? Oh, I've been liking it lately. I mean, it's but in, awesome. the, in that early phase of like the insanity phase. No, no, because I... I had a really awesome director of my band, Jesse, who's now playing guitar with Morrissey. And, you know, we got really great musicians to be in the band that the label like wanted me to put together. But it was just not in hindsight, like it wouldn't have been the way that I think I would have done it. I was very much a passenger in this huge train, this huge, big, fancy train. And I just that's probably why I look back and think I wasn't that happy then during that time. At the same time, I was like riding the train. I was on it. So, you know. When I meet artists, like my husband even, like I remember when I first started dating John, he was telling me his early story about her first album and how he was touring and all the DIY stuff. It's like, that is so valuable to an artist to have that experience and to then be, you know, you're curating your, who you are on so many different levels by having those experiences. And I never had that. I just like went straight into this fancy band and I was on this tour and it was like, I never even set up my own microphone, you know? Yeah. I mean, were you opening? Were you headlining? I was opening in this really super weird tour. And then I was headlining, you know, my own tour in the States and and UK, Europe, Japan. You know, took it a lot for granted. Like um, like I said, Amon Erdogan called it right from the beginning with me. He's like, you write interesting songs. I like your style. You're too young. You need a lot of time to, to write. I don't know if he thought if he meant 10 years, but in my opinion, (laughs) in my opinion, 10 years would have been cool. 10 years. That's a lot of time. But how many artists back in the day, too, wouldn't be discovered until they're like 26, 27? And that's like still really young. I just think being discovered as a musician back in the time when the labels were labels and like being thrown on the stage like that at 18 or 19 is like pretty crazy. Oh, I look, I agree. <laughs> like, yeah. It scares the shit out of me. Well, it's yeah. so hard to have like something that feels very intentional. Like this is mine. I'm doing this on purpose. I know what I'm trying to do. This is reflective of my identity and all of that. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to arrive at that out of the gate. Like it yeah. takes a long time. Right. To We're feel always that. changing. I mean, to this day, you know, changing. But when you have a huge machine like that behind you, then you get sold as like the pop girl who can do can also play piano or this, that. And I, I think to a certain degree, I didn't even know how I was being sold. And I think something was bugging me at the time, but I don't really know what it was. I couldn't put my finger in at the time, but, and also crazy managers, like, you know, some, you got gone, some legendary, I have some stories. <laughs> I've gone through some, there's a lot of the cliche stories of management and a lot of that's my fault. Like it's who you're choosing. Those guys know what they're doing too, though. They're selling you hard. It's not, the decision is up to you for sure, but they're giving you whatever information they think you want to hear at that time. You know, they're professionals in that way. Yeah, professionals in selling themselves to like 19-year-old girls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. I mean, yeah, it's like, like, are you proud of yourself or, you know. Well, when that was over, what was the second record like? 
my second album was like me doing another very cliche thing of hiring my boyfriend at the time to produce it and not, you know, really trying, though, to break away from the control that I felt that my record label president had over was it, me. Was it with the same label? Yeah. The second record came out? Yeah. With, okay. So it was like the beginning of me trying now to like, you know, really create my own thing. But at the label, it wasn't going to work. I mean, it was just fundamentally. Was there a lot was of pressure on you to just do more of the same? I guess at that point, I like didn't even care. I just really kind of did. I just literally recorded the songs that I had written. It wasn't like I put a ton of thought into certain details on that album because it was more of me just trying to gain independence from my label. So it was like it was almost very distracting time. Yeah. You're thinking about that all the time instead of the songs. Yeah, like. Well, I get to pick the cover of my album this time. A lot of bands that I've known or dealt with in my time focus on those details too. Yeah. Like the album art and stuff that I'm like, what about the songs, guys? Like that's, yeah. the, we'll figure that out when the songs are done. It's like yeah. that search for authorship and ownership. Like that's a very visible thing. Yeah. No, for that sure. Is like, that's what I look like in a way. And I don't like the way that looks. Too, I just mean that like, how is that equal to the songs? Yeah. When, you, when you're in the studio. That's that's all I'm saying. Well, of course the songs come first. However, there is this Achilles heel of every artist, like particularly musicians that are like very interested in visual art when they are not able to make the art, the album artwork that they want. In a way, yeah, you can say it doesn't really matter. But I think for me, it matters. Like, it's so important to me. And I think it's actually a reflection of like a real rub between maybe the label and the artist to a certain degree. Or it's something within the artist where they're like really don't like the way they're being sold. Or maybe does they are very uncomfortable with their image or something, you know? And I also had a personal question for you. What? I want to talk about Irv Gotti. Oh, Irv Gotti. Yes. Right. I signed with, with well, I actually technically signed with Dave, uh, Doug Morris. Yes. And Irv was working for Doug. So this wasn't a Murder, Inc. deal. Well, it wasn't. It, it It's... Did you hear that, baby? <laughs> this is like every song I ever try and write, and that's what you hear in the back. La, la, la. She's good. singing, let her cook. She's it's singing good. too, okay? that's. She's the cutest. Um, it's My contract is with Universal, but mm. Murder, Inc. was a imprint, and Doug wanted to give Irv a chance to try and like move into other genre, and I was, you know, he was like a real, I don't know, he was like really into the album that I had done again with my ex-boyfriend, which that album was a mess. Wow. But <laughs> because of that or because there was many the reasons product? I had, well, we had broken up in the middle of it. It was, a, it was a mess. The whole process was a mess. And then, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and then, yeah, I don't really, honestly, I don't remember a lot of what happened, but I, have I was a dis- I just have a Irv. distinct memory of, cause I was a member of the Norwood club. I don't know if you remember that yeah, place. Yeah. This is before I knew you, but I opened the newspaper and there's a picture of you and him right at Norwood. Like, and I was like, what Weird. the fuck is going on here? What are these, why would these two people <laughs> even know each other? What Weird. is going on? Yeah. And I didn't know. Cause that didn't, he wasn't really involved though. At the end of the day. No, Irv was put in charge of like releasing the album. Oh, so he was like there day to day. I mean, I, I think in the end that he didn't, he was also working under Sylvia Roan. So, you know, everyone has their hands tied behind their back. I think he was like, he was trying to get some bud- nice budgets and things put together. But I think at the end of the day, it didn't work. And a lot of it was the album was like really, in my opinion, it was just so all over the map. And so a mixture of all these things and very much a Steven record, like the producer it was very much sounded like the way he thinks. And not that I'm saying that I wasn't part of that process of making that record. I mean, we wrote a lot of the songs together. What was that noise? 
Did someone fart? It was the dog <laughs> sneezing. It sounded like a fart, didn't no, it? No, it was the dog. It was the dog did something. <laughs> no, that was <laughs> that's what that's that's what it was. He's been blowing snot rockets ever since we moved to Nashville. It's really intense. Um, but it was that was a very crazy time. It was even difficult to remember. By choice, maybe you blocked I don't it out. No, yeah, it's like what am I doing right now? But I think it was like also a time when you're like not sure. It's like you're like, wait, am I a pop star now? And I'm just having to like try and make these big mainstream records that I do not know how to make and this is not working and am I going to still play this game or not? It was like definitely one of those half-baked attempts. It really ended the way it should have because then I finally left the major label system after that experience. Yeah, when was that? 2008. I mean, I sunk into a pretty dark place for a while there. Just because you felt like rudderless, you didn't know what was next? No, I think I just was like, had to like get the courage to really do the type of record I wanted to do. And like, I was very disappointed in myself with a lot of decisions I'd made artistically and otherwise. Like, I just was really disappointed. But then, you know, you get through it. It's like, do a lot of drugs and drink a lot of drinks. And then you're like, you like destroy your body. You reach your moment where you're like... I need to be better. I need to do something good. I it's need not to, fun anymore. Yeah, not <laughs> fun anymore. And then, yeah, I went and started cognitive behavioral therapy, which was amazing. I was like, I, I need don't really to know change how that my brain. How do I change the way I think? How does that work exactly? I've I've heard that now recently twice, but I, I don't know. Well, it's for people who want to break, change their habits. Mm-hmm. For addiction, you can use it as addiction therapy. That's yeah, why I've that's heard of it. Probably yeah. the most common use, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah. You know, the brain is plastic, so you can mold it and you can change your thought patterns. And the, like whenever you think of A, which makes you think of B, which makes you think of C, that is a street in your brain that's like so carved out, you right. know, and you can actually start to like slowly chip away and make like a left turn before you get from A to B. You know yeah. what I mean? Had you done much other therapy stuff before that? Had you tried other flavors or how, like how did you land on that? Um, through my friend Tracy. Oh, really? Did she do? Well, she had been sober at that point for like five years. And she told me about the Center for Motivation and Change in New York. It's on the frontier of addiction therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's taken on every classic rehab system and format and turned it on its head. And they're really an amazing place. Yeah. Huh. And it's not, I know it sounds a bit culty, but it's not. They're no, just I really love, smart people. I love that kind of stuff. That feels like, it feels like a whole universe where there's so much to still be figured out, like modern medicine in general. You mean addiction stuff? Yeah. 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 I mean, in some ways that's just part of becoming a fully formed adult is learning to deal with something you like more than you ought. Could be food, could be drugs, could be whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to sort out. But it's sortable. I mean, there's always a route or there's just patterns of behavior that like you need to figure out how to change them up. This is based in science. There's no like God element to it, which would have been a turnoff for me, you know. feel now I guess to be free it's like honestly I did a show at Basement East the other night we did I did another writer in the round it's called four on the floor that they've been doing there and granted I had like two glasses of cheap white wine in me but I said this is my second time performing in Nashville it's so great to be here whatever I said and I was like 
did I just say it was the second time I ever performed in Nashville? And actually, the why the reason why I said that is because I almost didn't feel like I the other shows ever was my real self to a certain degree until the Nashville show I did on the Liverman tour. And that was just this past December. And so I, it was like this weird Freudian slip where I was like, this is actually my own, the second show I've ever played here. And you've played countless shows. Countless. countless. Yeah. Like, <laughs> countless. That's a good sign though. I mean, if you really feel like that, that's gotta yeah. be good, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about that, right? Where'd you, you made it part of it in England? Uh, Liberman. Yes. So yeah, that's my last album. The majority I did at Real World Studios in Box, which is an hour outside of London. And that place is pretty like special, right? It's super cool. Yes. It's amazing. Like some rolling hills kind of stuff? It's like the Shire. It is the Shire. (laughs) And then there's like Chardet that's always recording in like Studio One or whatever that big studio is. It's like, it's one of those spots where you just, you escape everything um, in your life and you can go to this place. You eat there, sleep there, record there. It's like... I mean, I know that's difficult for people to do now because it's like kind of fully unplugging from your real life, but I feel like it's got to be liberating. Yeah, for me, that was a game changer. And then working with Steve Osborne, too, was just like another. You did like Rabbits on the Run with him, too, right? Yeah, I did. So you've done two records with him. Yeah. And Rabbits on the Run, that was our first project together. And that was like, that was all recorded analog. And all live musicians, you know, I worked on that record with Patrick Callahan and my friend Ari Ingber and this children's choir. And then when we got back together for the second project, Liberman. It was like, we just wanted to go down a totally different, actually there was a song on on Rabbits called Hear the Bells. And that was the song that was like, okay, there's this other hallway with Steve Osborne that I need to go down. So Liberman was like a very different sounding project, but with the same producer. And now touring wise and being independent and you, cause you're doing these records, Rabbits on the Run and Liberman were one-offs, right? Yeah. And they were ones that I funded, like I pay for it and then kind of find a label to release it. Which is a modern approach. Yeah. Yeah. But you feel like when you're doing that, you have total control. You can do whatever you want. I could be a money maker and you could be my song. Worry about the others later We should get a move on We should Now that I'm on Dine Alone, I really love Dine Alone. I think that my next album, I won't have to just fund it myself from the beginning. What are you thinking about? What are you, where are you going to start soon? I've started writing, but you know, having a toddler in the house is like, I f- should play you some of my voice notes. Like every <laughs> single one, they're just like, eh, like in the middle or in the, <laughs> not easy. Yeah, That's well, why we the, need a new house. With the toddler. Yeah, she's about to start talking now. You're about to hear No, her. we have a mic for we brought one. Um, <laughs> with her and John and you guys both being musicians and both touring, has that been like a difficult thing or did you guys figure it out pretty quickly? So yeah, there's no book on that. Touring with the baby. 
um, and we're both musicians. So what we've realized is this, we can never tour at the same time. Yeah. And you need a tour nanny. We found an amazing tour nanny because even if John comes out with me, some nights I'll ask him if he wants to play guitar. It's like, who's gonna be with the baby at the hotel? And if you do have a tour nanny, honestly, I did this tour in a Sprinter van, you know, Europe and the States and Canada, and it worked. But I would say the other thing we learned too is I think that now she's too big to like make those long drives in the Sprinter van work. I'd have to bite the bullet and get a tour bus, which yeah. renting a tour bus means it's, it's very expensive. So it's like either I'll be able to do it or I'll my next tour, the one I'm routing in February is I go out for 10 days, week and a half to two weeks and come home for a week. Yeah. Go out for two weeks, come home for a week. What's in February? What is it? Is it just a tour to you? Liberman Live comes out, release an album of it. And this DVD performance that Where was, was it filmed recorded? in Nashville. Oh, cool. My first show ever that I played in Nashville. <laughs> so there's going to be a package, a yeah. live album and DVD. Yeah, and I'll sell it and then do a tour like surrounding that time. That's a good idea. But really good. Good manager. Yeah, right? Well, I'm glad you're happy with that, you know? Because that's a practice. Yeah, three three times. No, he's my um, fourth manager and my last manager. I can say last that pretty wow, that, confidently. This is on the record. I want yeah. you to know that. This no, is being I'm recorded. glad it is because it's true. And I've earned it, honestly, at this point. I'm like... <laughs> I'm done. Finally, I found the best man. He's awesome. Cares. We'll cut that part and send it to yeah. him directly. Just uh, yeah. so he can have that for himself. Thank you so much. What I do is I open the set with a thousand miles. I play it acoustic and then after they finish the song I say welcome let's begin yeah <laughs> that's a strong you move give it to him you gotta give it to him yeah but I only learned this like halfway through tour because I was getting a bit tortured by like you know heckled by some of these people that are they're gonna get so hammered and ruin your show they're not there to see you play they don't have no idea about your new record Liberman or any they don't care they just want to hear hear their song and that's fine if they weren't the people that like just get so shit faced and like ruin it for everybody else so I've just been trying to get rid of those people for everyone else's sake too and I just like start out with the song bang we're done and then either they connect and they're like want to stay or they're like oh okay I guess I'll just go somewhere else I think there are some awful people that just want to they want to troll and whatever yeah. format is available to them. Yeah. Um, and then you have everyone else that's serious fans that are into yeah. this. 97% of the people at my shows have been following me since, I would say like Rabbits on the Run, like 2010. It's like I have two different lives as an artist. I feel like with anyone that I'm really into, I want to hear the new record. You play the older stuff. You like weave it in. I mean, I've seen you a couple of times. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to just play the new record front to back. Yeah, but you, but if, if it's like like when Depeche Mode comes to town and they play one song off the new record, I am actually feeling like, oh, I, wouldn't, I, I wish there was some version of a tour where they would play the record for me or some more of these songs. Yeah. But it's the garden. They yeah, want yeah, what they want. Say, the 15,000 people right, in the garden. People right. are going to like riot if you don't. Of it's course. like that too. They're like legacy bands in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's different. It's really hard. I think yeah. when you have that many hits, it's yeah. like people just cannot leave. That's it. That's all they know. Yeah. They do. And a lot of those people stop listening to music, I think. Yeah. Like stop exploring well, yeah. new music. You know what I'm saying? Honestly, I feel like some of those bands, the way they construct their set list is based on like, well, when I play this song, everyone's going to go get their drink. Yeah. When yeah, I play yeah, this yeah. song, everyone's probably going to pee. You know, it's like you have to like set up the journey for them. It's Especially funny. if it's two hours long. You know? Yeah. I have to ask you about the 
USA basketball team. Thing. Oh yeah. And I miss you. And now I want. Who said that to you first? John mentioned it to me. He's like, by the way, uh, you're gonna start <laughs> hearing some things about the basketball. It's about to start happening. <laughs> it's coming. And your son. So he mentioned it to me, and then like a couple hours later, I started getting texts from people. Yeah. I, I withheld. I was like, I know she's heard about this. But you responded to Carmelo, which is really funny. Yeah. I, I don't know who Carmelo is. <laughs> I don't know anything about basketball. I love basketball. I think the basketball players are awesome. <laughs> but I did not. And I was like, I just knew that he would be the one I should do my tweet to because he was the guy on the plane that was like, honestly, behaving just like I would be like (laughs) first of all it's way too fucking early and I don't care what you're saying yeah because I've seen a lot of those videos and I think the one the soldier boy one is my favorite personally is that like a a thousand miles thing yeah it's soldier boy walking and he's smoking a blunt and singing it oh I didn't see that I don't think maybe I did I'll forward it it to you but I I just I want to what do you think it is people love that song (laughs) but rappers especially well I don't know I mean I know the um, the Wayans brothers were like huge fans when my first album came out and then they were doing that movie White Chicks and they asked if they could use the song in the movie and I Did don't that, you know you had to approve that. that that came to you yeah uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, how does that work? I'm, I'm cu- I, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, no, it's like they just see if they can license your song yeah. for the movie, but and they'll they, pay they, you. Do they have a to explain fee. the scene though? The Wayans actually asked me personally. What well, I can't remember which brother explained it to me. And- if a Wayans brother asked me, I'm doing it. I can't say <laughs> yeah. no. Wayans brothers, come on. In the end, too, it's like all the money really went to the label too. So I didn't really. Oh, really? Those motherfuckers. <laughs> don't, even, don't even get me started. But it was fine. You know, it's like, I, th- I can't tell if it's from that movie, though, or just that song. I feel like it could have something to do with, like, a melody or something. The mutt. I don't know. I can't explain it. It's yeah. like, an, we were talking about earlier, it's like an earworm, you know? And yeah. maybe it hits people at different times, I guess. What's interesting about that song is that people have tried to cover it or sample it or anything. It doesn't work. It, like, I've approved a couple of them just because I'm like, oh, like, this is maybe not bad. And I didn't want to be a dick and just be like, you know, and, and if it was, like, not terrible, like, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to say that you can't release this. But I've had a couple sent, and I'm like, that's the biggest piece of shit I've ever heard. <laughs> like, that is terrible. And that's, why are you even you trying to use this riff? It's like, use another song. Like, you know you got to find another song. You know you got to find another song because I know that comes the videos especially to come around you know f- fairly often. But that Olympic one is probably the biggest one I think. Really? Yeah. I th- right. That one was just so much fun because you're seeing these guys on a plane acting like goofballs. Yeah. Like they're just having a fun time. Yeah, they're really having fun. They're so sweet. I thought it was adorable. That's the right way to take it. You know what I'm saying? That's the right way to take it. I guess the last thing I really want to I guess you know. How do you feel right now? Like, how do you feel about the record you're going to make? Is this the best you've ever felt? Totally. I have this. I really have this dream of working with this producer, but I can't say it on air. I'll tell you after in the interview. Okay, sure. (laughs) He's based in Buffalo, and it would be rad if I I have to get my demos together enough where I can start to share it with him. That's the only way I know if we're going to be a match or not, but it would be sick. Um, Yeah, no, I feel really good. I think a lot of it, too, is when you have a baby, you're trying to see, like, can I do this? How do I balance my life? Like, am I, I want to make her proud. I want to make my husband proud. I want to make myself proud. Like I'm really being an example for my daughter, you know? So I would say the release of Liberman 
in conjunction with having the baby and moving to Nashville and all this change, I just feel great. I mean, I'm very stoned at the moment because I (laughs) ate a cookie, (laughs) but um, even if I hadn't, I I would feel good. That was our Monday night. Like I felt terrible the next day. Like I was, he was still stoned. Yeah. It's the worst. No, you can have a, I think you can have a pretty intense hangover from edibles. I do too, but not weed, not regular weed. Yeah. That's the other thing. When you get all, I had like three drinks, thrice drink, done. Yeah. Well, that's, that's. Toast. I, I mean. The next day. That's how two drink though. Like you don't need to go beyond three. It's not the alcohol that's made it cool. <laughs> usually. Not that's the not the reason. Yeah, there's yeah. usually some other There's uh, accessories sprinkles. and there's some, yeah, a certain time of night maybe. Yeah. We, uh. We, we've created a little Nashville survey for all of our participants oh, while cool. we're here. Yeah. Well, I want to do a Nashville survey. Well, you, we're sadly, it's not written. We're just going to ask you the questions. Oh, okay. But <laughs> <laughs> These were just uh, a handful of questions that feel somehow appropriate to Nashville. Um, what record you've been listening to lately? New, old, doesn't matter. Oh, um, Los Lobos Gates of Gold. That's what we listen to every single morning. <laughs> every morning. How often in the course of a conversation in Nashville is someone going to bring up some pedal steel player. <laughs> um, two out of six conversations. <laughs> two out of six. That's very specific. But I would say of the people we've talked to, you're the most knowledgeable, most equipped to answer that question. So I'm going to take that as the as the, the yeah. uh, truth. Just say two out of six of my conversations with my friends it will involve some a pedal steel section of the talk. Here in Nashville, what kind of fashion decisions are you seeing out there on the street? Mm, mm-hmm. Depends where. Oh, on the street. On the Do street. you mean like on the street? Out and about. Street? Because out and about. people don't really walk here. That's good to know as well. Well, it's a combination. Like you'll see the Gallatin people that are wearing just classic American big t-shirts and soft pants. <laughs> Do you know soft pants? Is, this, is, know, that, a khaki? Pants, is that khakis no, or sweatpants? It could be a sweatpant. It could be even a lighter, finer cotton, but it's not a de- definitely a soft pant. Is this a soft pant? No, that's not a These soft pant. These are just chinos. That is not a soft pant. I consider that a soft pant. That's what no, I mean. no, no, no. I'm saying softer. Okay, okay. <laughs> Softer pant. <laughs> These are like Gallatin folks. In Nashville, you'll get like a mix of like the Southern Belle. For the women, I would say like the Southern Belle look. Then you'll get... Very timeless, classic girls that are just wearing like white top, white jeans, simple, like, you know, classic girls. And then you'll get like all the girls that come from Portland, too. They have their every inch of skin is covered in tattoos on both their arms. And they're kind of like grungy looking. Like a walking period piece. It's like the faded black dyed um, sleeveless tops and skinny jeans and tattoos and glasses. And then the guys, I sometimes see a lot of flip-flops. Well, we've been saying, and I've been noticing, because I'm very aware of this stuff, is that there's a lot of top knots still happening here on men. Really? I don't see those. You're going to get a lot of like carpenter looking guys, but they really are carpenters and almost all of them are musicians. Yeah, for sure. And that's like a classic Nashville. The way those, those guys dress is like legit, authentic. That's who they are. Love it. So you have like a tool belt sometimes that's like very, very worn in and used, you know, like those guys. Functional, functional Yeah, yeah. You never know when you need some measurements. Mm. I mean, this is true. So true. Uh, Do you know the number of people moving to Nashville every day? What is it, like a (laughs) hundred? This is so good. It's better and better. We've asked people this and everybody has like... They're close. Like people are all close. It's it's it. What, what did we find out the exact number was? I can't remember, but I think it was. I think I think 
For real, for real. People are like, oh, uh, um, 102. People give like these really exact numbers. Yeah. yeah. But that's like, that seems very unique to Nashville. Like it's a place that is just exploding. So it's like working at a startup. Yeah, it's, we sold this house in three days. Hi, baby doll. I'm doing a survey here. <laughs> Let's finish, help, help me finish the survey, but there's no pen involved. Just, we need some input. What's the next question? Maybe John can help. It's uh, a Nashville survey. Well, John, I'll just ask you, are you aware of the number of people that are moving to Nashville every day? Something like 75,000 or something. <laughs> <laughs> Approximately 75,000. A few hundred a day, isn't it? We're getting... There's some conflicting reports. It's a little less than 100. Oh, okay. What's this little lady's name, though? This, her name is Sid. Her full name is Sydney Avine Carlton McCauley. Why do you have a pacifier? Oh. <laughs> you okay? Well, that was classic. She hit her head right in it. Well, we said you got to stay on the mic. She understood. You know what I mean? She knew exactly what we meant. Is it, where's Sid? Are you Sid? Who's Sid? She's like, girl, I know. I know my Don't name. Don't put me on the Leave spot. She's sneezing. Dog sneezing. I know. It's allergies. All right. So this one really, you have an unfair advantage on this one. This is the last one. It's just kind of similar. Do you feel that for music venues um, that you are acutely aware of the cap space here in Nashville? Oh, yeah. I would say. I mean, what do you mean acutely? Like down to the number? Like every venue, you know the capacity. Roughly, yes. Well, it's also because everyone's playing shows all the time. So they like want to know. I think you always know. Oh, it's like a status thing. No, to, to say that you play a, like the bigger room? No, it's not a status thing. But you need to know the cap on a room before you even go after a certain room to play. For instance, um, Marathon Music Works is like infathomable sound there. It, you literally cannot hear anything. And it's, they've put so much money into it. It's such a cool space. Wait, it's so a bad sound? And I will not go see bands there. <laughs> oh. And I hope that the owner who owns that place is listening. Because honestly, he could invest like $3,500 into just buffing out some of the ceiling, put some pads up there so it doesn't like... So, like, we know Basement East is awesome. It's, like, my favorite, too. I mean, that's a great spot. And the Basement Original is a great venue. Everyone here has a good kind of posy vibe. Yeah. And because it's nice to live here. It's not super expensive. You're not getting beat up by life. I mean, you're going to see a couple Trump signs. Oh, Natch. I mean, it's, hey, we're it's from the South. We're in we know Tennessee. what's happening. We yeah. know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. All right. There are a lot of angry white people also that live here. In this room or you mean in? Yeah. Yeah. Most of the more progressive side of Nashville, people are feeling good here. Yeah, for I sure. Think. I think that we. I think that's what you're saying. You can kind of tell that. It's just an overwhelming. It really is. Yeah. Positiveness yeah. that is not. Definitely not in New York. Yeah. Definitely yeah, not. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, you're not on the hustle in New York like you are in New York. And this is one of the great things about New York and also one of the hard things about New York when you're not feeling great about yourself is like New York is always going to be bigger than you. It is always the star. It's epic. And there's no, when you're feeling good, then you just want to be there because it's just you love New York. And when you're feeling shit, that city will eat you up. You know, you'll feel oh, like an ant. I agree with that 100%. That's yeah, we've all true. been there. You've been listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. Uh, this week, we would like to thank Vanessa, uh, her dog, Victor, and her daughter, Sid, for all uh, appearing on the show. Vanessa's uh, latest album, Liberman, is in stores now. She also recently released Liberman Live, uh, which is on Dine Alone Records. 
she's also doing a tour uh, to support the new the new live album um, that starts in February of 2017. You can get tickets for that online. This week's show was engineered by Paul Phelan. Produced and edited by Jim Nicholas with help from Carson Williams. Stay tuned for episode three of our Nashville series when we talk with Libby Calloway. Some of our front page news were people dying from being bitten by snakes in church and strychnine deaths, drinking strychnine, because that's a thing. The Holy the Holy Ghost will save you. You will not die drinking oh strychnine. Oh my God. Yeah. Do you think people will get that I was really playing drums at the beginning? It's not a hard beat. Pretty straightforward, then. Yeah, but I want people to know that I got it like that.